Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Diane S., whom I haven't seen in person for at least two years. But our friendship goes back much further than that. Diane's story is wrought from a difficult childhood in which being the youngest of four meant being largely ignored by her parents, especially when her father was drinking. His alcoholism also fed a mean streak that landed hard on her family, with verbal abuse and derision often aimed at Diane. As a teenager, she found alcohol as a way to escape, and her drinking followed her into four booze-soaked years in the Air Force. At age 22, she met and married the father of her two children with high hopes of a happy marriage. She dreamed he would support and encourage her pursuit of a career as an attorney. But her continued drinking and lack of support from her husband resulted in her filing for divorce after a rocky 10-year marriage. On her own with two kids to raise in the midst of escalating alcohol use, Diane somehow managed to work as a paralegal and also attend law school in the evenings. Through God-given talent and the tenacity of a functional alcoholic, Diane's career as a lawyer took shape. Unfortunately, as her drinking increased, so did her alcoholic behavior. The subsequent years took their toll until she hit the wall shortly after Christmas in 1996. With little knowledge of AA, her chance encounter with a woman in the program led Diane to her first AA meetings and onto the road of recovery. Diane's is a classic AA success story of full immersion in the program. She got a sponsor, worked the steps, went to lots of meetings, and sponsored women along the way. But the greatest enrichment of her life, via service work, took the form of helping others find sobriety through her work as an attorney in the civil and family court systems. Laying her own personal anonymity aside, Diane has become an ambassador for sobriety by helping clients and their families find treatment alternatives. As importantly, she also imparts her knowledge, understanding, and first-hand experience to other attorneys and judges throughout the family court system. She's also passionately involved in a lawyer assistance program that helps those with substance abuse find the right solutions. Diane's selfless and successful work in recovery, both within AA and in the legal system, demonstrate the overall quality of a solid program. I'm grateful to be her friend and am impressed by her efforts in helping others. I think you'll be impressed, too, as you spend the next hour and ten minutes with my friend and AA sister, Diane S. My name's Diane, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Diane. That's what I say in response in a meeting <laughs> when someone says that. I am so glad to see you. I haven't seen you in person in probably the last at least two years, maybe a little bit longer. You and I used to see each other all the time when we were on the board. We did. And yes. had the opportunity to work on some projects together with regard to the court and that sort of thing. And it worked out pretty well, I thought. It did. It's so good to see you. Thank you. Have you been busy over the last couple of years with recovery? And I have. What have you been up to? Well, with recovery, you know, it's the usual meetings, mm -hmm. friends, fellowship. Uh -huh. um, but also because I'm very open about my sobriety with my colleagues in the family courts yeah. and the judges, uh -huh. I get called on a lot to make recommendations for treatment or 
a mediator will call and say, we have this issue. What do you suggest mm-hmm. as a solution? So this guy can, or girl can see their children, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So um, I love that part of it. And being open doesn't put any additional pressure on me. It just allows me an opportunity to provide service. Mm-hmm. And then I also serve on the Texas Lawyers Assistance Program, mm-hmm. which is the program for um, attorneys that struggle with addiction and mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And so we do a lot of good work through there. There's a ton of good work through TLAP. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. In fact, uh, I've had some uh, interactions with them in the past as well. And and I do want to talk to you a little bit more about that later. How long have you been sober now? It'll be 25 years on December 27th of this year. 25 years. Okay. So you're 24 and a half. Yeah, that's cool. I do the same thing. I always say how long I've been sober by the next sobriety birthday. I know it's not cool in some circles, but it's okay. We're kind of uh, picky in one of the men's meetings I go to. If a man gets up to try and get a chip even a day before his birthday, we'll tell him to sit down and come back the next week. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the way uh, that we do things. Okay. So right after Christmas in 1996, mm-hmm. you decided to get sober. Can I assume that Christmas that year wasn't that great? Um, no, the month of December was not that great. Really? Uh, but it was a lot leading up to it. There, It wasn't this moment of clarity. Mm. It was a slow, low crawl. Mm-hmm. And then I crossed paths with a woman at a Kroger video counter. Hmm. And one thing led to another. We had a conversation and I picked up a desire chip the next day. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty cool story. Well, so at that point, did you know you needed help and you were just waiting for it to arrive or yes. what led up to that? Um, I never drank normally, Howard. Mm. I wasn't one of those that eased on into this disease. Yeah. I drank to get drunk. I drank to get drunk from the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly because my first drunk was a throwing up in the bushes drunk at a beer hall. And I finally felt like I was somebody. I finally felt like I had arrived. After you threw up or before you threw at, up? While I was throwing up. <laughs> believe it or not, I'm like, I am totally cool now. I am somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you had expected to drink and throw up? No, no. But I was prolific at it, blacking out and, and throwing up. Yeah. Was that as a kid that that happened to you or? 17. Huh. Yeah. My father was an alcoholic and he it, he died of the disease at 56. Oh. So I wasn't going to be him. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to smoke. I wasn't going to drink. I, I did it all. Um And I was the party girl drunk. Hmm. You know, I was the one that danced on the tables. I was the only way that I thought anybody would like me. I'm curious because I've had a number of people on the show I've interviewed whose parents or parent, one or the other, was an alcoholic, some who never got sober, some who died drunk. And they made the same statement that they swore to themselves that they would never get that way. And yet they got that way. Why do you think that is? I mean, with everything that we know, why do you think that we end up like our parents, even though we're trying so hard not to? Uh, in my case, I don't uh-huh. think I knew any different. I knew I didn't want to be, my dad had a comb over and it, it was only a few years ago that I actually acknowledged the fact that he had a comb over. And when oh. he got drunk, his hair fell in his face and we would laugh at him, mm-hmm. telling him his hair was in his face, watching yeah. him try to push his hair back. Now. That was the fun time. That was the fun time. As my father's drinking progressed, I'm the youngest of four, Uh so I'm the last one home. 
And as his drinking progressed, mm. he just became mm-hmm. mean. You just, just mean. Yeah. There were moments of meanness, but it was just uh, consistently mm-hmm. mean. And he drank at home. He would drink mm-hmm. until he passed out at the dining room table. And before I went to sleep every night, I had to make sure that he didn't mm-hmm. have a lit cigarette somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a lot of issues. He never, mm-hmm. ever, ever admitted it. Mm-hmm. He got very sick at a young age. Uh, pancreatitis nearly, you wow. know, ki- nearly killed him from the drinking. And he had Arthur, he had everything under the sun and was on disability by his late 40s. So he was in pain for a lot of years, wasn't he? He was. And after the alcohol was gone, when he couldn't drink mm-hmm. it anymore, his system couldn't process it. He um, turned to narcotics. And this was in the 70s when um, there there was no accountability for those uh, those narcotics. Mm-hmm. If he called the doctor's office and said, I need more 10 days into a 30 day prescription, mm-hmm. they just to shut him up would give him another one. So wow. it became problematic. Mm-hmm. And so it, he had to be detoxed once a year. Uh, he had all every issue under the sun. And, and he was a very tall, strong, attractive man. And he just wasted away to nothing. Oh, that's sad. That's really sad. Yeah. And to have to watch that as a kid, uh, you have siblings. I have three older siblings. I have two sisters and a brother that are older than me. Okay. So you were the baby of the family. I was the baby. How about the ages there? What was the differential? Uh, My brother's three years older than me, then four, then five. So we were, there were four kids born in five years, a good Uh Catholic family. Was his behavior when he was drunk, was it experienced by the three of them or were they already out of the house? I don't, I mean, my sisters didn't experience the alcoholism. My brother left for the military, but to hear them tell their stories, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how much of their true, what how, my, my oldest sister has nothing bad to say about my dad. The two middles, my brother is a mess. He's a train wreck. My sister's a train wreck. All from alcoholism? No, they did not. My brother was a crystal meth addict for a long time. Oh, my. And he lived on the streets and he lived in shelters and he was very transient. And he's 64 in a few days and has all kinds of medical issues. He's one breath Mm -hmm. away from death. And, you know, Vegas was putting odds on it. I wouldn't have given him till 50. And he's got a hard heart and he blames my dad for a lot of Mm -hmm. things. And... I don't know if that's justified, but that's his story to tell. Yeah. You know, I know that for me, I was the last one left there and it was absolute living hell. Yeah. And my parents stayed married till my father passed away. Yeah, I can imagine that must have been really difficult. When when I say he was mean, he just had hurtful things to say. Mm-hmm. And that didn't start till later. So my dad was the fun drunk for most of the years. He was a really a softie. My mom was the disciplinarian. Uh-huh. Nothing extreme. Just I see. She had her rules and my God, we had to follow them. Uh-huh. And we were held accountable. But there was never any physical abuse. There was never any of that in our household. Uh-huh. And it's hard to say, Howard, if it was generational mm-hmm. or not. And I will give him credit for a lot of things. I will give him credit for understanding each of our potentials, right? I was mm-hmm. the ski smart kid. So I was expected to get all A's. And when right. I fell short, I was held accountable. My middle sister was a Sikh student and he was fine with that. And then my oldest sister, mm-hmm. she actually broke his heart when she got pregnant in high school. Oh dear. That was a turning point in our family. And I would never say that to her. Never, ever. Uh But I think that was a real turning point. 
in my dad because that was daddy's girl and that was never supposed mm-hmm. to happen. Your brother, did you say he went off to join the the service? Yeah, he went in the army and that was the last steady job he had. He got out uh-huh. when he was 22, 21, 22 and settled in Colorado Springs, got married, had a couple of kids, very abusive mm-hmm. to his son mm-hmm. and they got divorced and he never worked after that. Uh, had a mm-hmm. bad crystal mm-hmm. meth problem, drinking marijuana. Wow. And so we never really knew what was going on with him, but he would call my mom at like when he was in jail or down on his luck. Yeah. And my mom would just get so upset. The last time that it happened, he, w- she ends up in the emergency room. Mm-hmm. So the, us girls made a commitment that we would take care of my brother as long as my mom was alive. Mm. Uh, so we did mm-hmm. and we tried and yeah. he's a victim. He's a very difficult human being to like for me. Yeah, I can imagine. I love him. He's my brother and I wish things were different, but yeah. he's just angry. Yeah. He's just angry at everybody and everything. Sounds real similar to my brother. That's a, almost the identical relationship. Uh, and I haven't talked to him in almost 40 years. And that's by his choice but, but to divorce right. the family, which was a, a devastating thing to my parents. So you were in this difficult home situation with your dad. What was the family like in public? Did your mom strive to make things look okay? Absolutely. Uh-huh. The family drank a lot. They didn't know when my dad made that turn from being the fun drunk to being just an, just a drunk. Mm-hmm. They didn't do much after that. Life kind of stopped. Hmm. And my mom had to continue working so that they had medical insurance and they were broke most of the time. Mm. And Mm -hmm. it was, my mom was so afraid of being left alone. She wouldn't leave my father. And then she, then he just got too sick that she couldn't leave. Mm. And she Mm. wouldn't, you know, she just felt responsible. And I believe they were each other's truest love. I believe that. Uh, But it just wasn't, you know, for her at the end, it was just, she never knew what she was coming home to every evening from work. Yeah. How old were you when you first started to notice things about your parents' marriage? Um, I was probably early teens, maybe preteen, early Mm -hmm. teens, because I was the Mm -hmm. youngest and there was three years between me and my brother. I spent a lot of time with my mother and it would be the consensus would be I was her favorite. There's no doubt. And I'm not saying that in arrogance. It was just just happenstance. Right. And I was a really good child. Um, But she started saying, making comments about his drinking. And uh, we cried a lot together talking about my dad. Hmm. And that was early on. Hmm. She was very open with me about things. And. I don't know that that's okay. I really don't know that that's okay. I don't know that it's not okay. I don't know. You were her confidant, so to speak, at that point? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And nobody else knew, really. I don't think anybody else knew because despite being pretty poor as a family, uh, she made Uh it look really good. She made it look really good. We always had what we needed. We never expected anything more than what we needed. Yeah. That must have been pretty tough for you as a kid, though knowing the way things really were, but having to keep up an appearance that your mom wanted the family to have to the rest of the world. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, there were a lot of things as the youngest that I missed out on because of it. Like when I got confirmed at Mm -hmm. the church, my parents didn't Mm -hmm. come because they were at an open house for my brother at the high school. Mm -hmm. And then like, um, 
I think they were tired too. With four kids in five years, they might have just been tired. It's hard to say. But then, like it, in high school, I was on the debate team. Never had parties. I, you know, everybody would rotate hosting the parties after the tournaments, mm. and I did not host a party at my house. I hosted it at my sister's house because you never knew what was going to happen. Yeah. And then um, when I graduated from high school, I saw my mom show up at the fence and uh-huh. I saw my dad walk up, walk up a little bit later mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I knew he was drunk and I was out on the football mm-hmm. field and I, but I knew he was drunk and yeah. I, I was like, I don't even want him there. And there mm-hmm. was nobody else there to cheer for me except my, my brother-in-law's little brother was graduating. So, um, Mm-hmm. they cheered, but that was, that was all I had. And, you know, and I think some of it really was mm-hmm. how are they were tired. They were just really tired. Their goal was to get four kids through high school. Yeah. It's still heartbreaking though. I mean, to, to have to go to uh, uh, an important event, like a, a confirmation right. without your folks there and having to go to a, your own graduation and have to m- try and find a way that it was okay that they weren't there. I mean, all that stuff is really tough. I know my, my parents were, were absent for a lot of things that I did too. And I was not on the debate team. I was on the speech team, but we hung out, you know, we, we went to tournaments with the debaters, but I, I can't ever remember maybe once or twice it ever happened that my parents ever came to a tournament that was in the, in the town. And I mean, even for five minutes. No, my parents never showed up to any of that. Mm-mm. Never. Yeah. And it's almost like I had to find a way to say, well, okay, they weren't there, but they must support me in it because they come and pick me up from school at late hours after we're done with the team. And they they get up early on a, you know, a, a Saturday morning to take us to the local tournament if necessary. But um, no, I can imagine it. It must have been heartbreaking yeah. for you too. Yeah, it was. I was on an island, I felt I'll like. Bet. It was an island yeah. in my family. Yeah. Yeah. So you graduated from high school. You said you, you hadn't really had your first drink until uh, you were behind a pool hall at 17. Yes. What did the next several years look like going through uh, college and then law school with regard to your drinking and your partying? Or well, I didn't do it that way. Really? I, I went to uh, undergrad and law school at night later oh. on. I left Toledo. I went in the military. It felt like my only option. Uh-huh. Okay. So I spent four years in the uh-huh. military and that was just a drinking binge. Uh-huh. I mean, I drank with the best of them in the military and we drank a yeah. lot and it was the only way I felt comfortable. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It was, I didn't know yeah. it then. Yeah. I didn't know that it was a problem. I really didn't know that I drank to get drunk. You know, there was no frozen things in my future, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Um, frozen drinks with umbrellas. And so it was in the military when I was stationed at Fort Hood that I met my kid's dad. Uh-huh. And we drank a lot uh-huh. together and we dated for a year. I got out of the military there at Fort Hood and we got married there. Was he military as well? Yeah, he was uh-huh. a pilot. Um, actually, he went to flight school after we uh-huh. got married, but he was a mechanic and we sure. met and... He was tall and handsome and he asked, you know, it was just, it wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of, uh, you know, we knew what our dreams were. He wanted to fly helicopters and I wanted to be a lawyer and we shared each other's dreams. Wow. Uh, but he wasn't inclined to help me get to my dream. Uh Right. 
so we were, we had our children. I had my son at 24 and my daughter at 27. Uh-huh. I was 22 when we got I married see. and I'd stopped drinking for some time after my son was born. I did drink while I was pregnant uh-huh. with right. him, but I did not, after my son was born, he was very high mm-hmm. maintenance and I couldn't do it with the mm-hmm. hangovers. Mm-hmm. I just couldn't, I couldn't have a hangover and take care mm-hmm. of him. So but it was a dry drunk. I mean, I was a bitch. It was. Yeah. So you did that by your own willpower then, huh? Yeah. I just white knuckled it. And, but after my daughter was born and the kids got Mm -hmm. mobile, then it was game on. And if you want to know about the progressiveness of the disease, it was clearly evident Mm -hmm. there. Cause once I picked up again, it was, it was pretty bad. Mm -hmm. And, um, but he was a drunk. My ex-husband was a drunk and he died of this disease at the age of 53. Mm. So we struggled through our marriage for 10 years Mm -hmm. and some of it was good. Some of it was Mm -hmm. not. Some of it, we just managed. He came from a horrible background of Mm -hmm. abuse and neglect Mm -hmm. and he's the only successful one in his family. Mm -hmm. And he just couldn't open that Pandora's box. I mean, physical abuse had got, he had been beaten by his father who ironically was a police officer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was, his mother had told him that they tried to, her sister tried to adopt him. And there's just a lot of things that he just never really came to terms with. And so during the marriage, there was the only thing that kept him from being violent Uh with me was that I worked for family lawyers. Okay. I was a paralegal. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And he felt like if... If he did that, I was going to clean him out. Not that there was a lot right, to clean out, right, believe right. me, but I was going to take him for everything. Yeah. Okay. So you had your first child at 24, your second at 27. You got married at 22. Uh-huh. Were you working during the time that your children were babies or did you, were you a stay-at-home mom? No, I did not uh-huh. stay home. I, I don't think I'm cut out for okay. that. Yeah. I worked as a legal secretary and a uh-huh. paralegal. And I had some great opportunities that were thrown my way. And I was very good at my job. Uh I was very, very good at my job. And it's the career path that I wanted. And I always wanted to be a lawyer. Always, 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 always. Uh Uh And so I got my associate's degree as a a paralegal. Uh And everything I did was to develop my resume to get into law school. That was the the ultimate goal. I see. Uh So I was able to complete Mm -hmm. that. And when I decided that when we quote, decided that I was going to go get my undergraduate Mm -hmm. degree. It was miserable. It was miserable. Mm -hmm. He was so, he would, he did not support anything I did Mm -hmm. as a pilot. He did a year away from us, actually a year and a half away Mm -hmm. from us on an unaccompanied tour to Egypt. Mm -hmm. And then when he went off on another unaccompanied tour to Honduras, I folded. I said, I can't do it anymore. If I'm going to do it on my own, I'm not going to have to answer Mm -hmm. to him. And I filed for Uh divorce. You know, I did it the best way I Mm -hmm. could, but I was drinking a lot. Mm -hmm. I was going out. It was a crazy Mm -hmm. time. I did not have a good support system. When I got divorced, uh, everything just was, my life was real messy. And I ended up filing bankruptcy in 1994, a year after our divorce. Uh Because I was borrowing from credit cards to pay credit cards. And I thought I was Diamond Jim flashing my credit card (laughs) all over the place when I was drunk and writing hot checks. Yeah. All of that. So, but by that time, I knew I had a problem. There was no doubt. Talk to a friend of mine, mm-hmm. um, you know, yeah, Lee P, uh-huh. right? He and I were talking one time and I was telling him that 
1989, we had all gone down to, from Colleen down mm-hmm. to Houston to see the Cleveland Browns and the Houston yeah, Oilers uh-huh. play. And I got so wasted, I almost got kicked out of the Astrodome. <laughs> and so that's hard work. That is hard work. But so so this is going on. You were married then for a total of 10 years? 10 years. And then once you became divorced, were you sole custody of the kids or was it joint? How did that work? We had, well, it was, I was the primary custodial right. parent and that was God's gift to yeah. me because that's what got me sober. Uh-huh. Um, I, after we got divorced, uh-huh. he had, after, it was in 1995, right. I'd come to Houston for a seminar, uh-huh. met a guy, of course, I packed up my kids and everything I owned and moved us to okay. Houston. Uh-huh. Um, that relationship didn't work, not not that I needed to even say mm-hmm, that, but, mm-hmm. um, but it was God's guiding hand to get me to Houston. Mm. And my drinking had really accelerated um, a mm-hmm. lot. And I didn't want to have the reputation in Houston that I had in Colleen for being a drunk. I see. Yeah. And everybody, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like people thought I was a bad person. Right. right. But everybody up there knew each other. And so word got around and and so when I got to to Houston, I didn't want to be that person anymore. Yeah, Howard. I get it. To go back to my Houston Oilers uh-huh. story, we got home the next day and it was Christmas uh-huh. Eve. And I was trying, I had to go to the grocery store to mm-hmm. buy dinner. And I leaned over to tie my shoes and my hands were shaking so bad I could barely tie <laughs> oh, no. my shoes. And I remember thinking, this isn't normal. Yeah. But it still took another seven years to get there. But that's when the, the thought was planted in my wow. brain. And so when I moved to Houston and this relationship fell apart, I made a choice not to drink. I said that I am so sad. I'm so depressed. I don't know what I'm uh-huh. doing. I need to get my act uh-huh. together. So this was 1989 that that happened? Well, the 1989 was the football right. game, and I, but I moved to Houston in 95. So between 89 and 95, where you were in Colleen? I was in Colleen, yes. There's a big army base, isn't there? And they're in Colleen. That's why we were there, yes. I see. Okay. So you were drinking like crazy until you came down to Houston oh, yeah. in 95. Yeah. And so how did you stop at that time? I just made the choice that it probably wasn't a good idea till I got through this mm, breakup. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I mm-hmm. did it, but um, that's when I stopped for maybe four months. Mm-hmm. But then when I picked up in September, October timeframe, it didn't get bad immediately. Mm-hmm. But that December, I'd find, I had had an experience that I'll share with mm-hmm. you. Driving down um, Woodway near St. Martin's mm-hmm. Church. And it was a beautiful day. But there was a, trees and there was an opening in the trees where I could see the mm-hmm. sky. And I heard a voice tell me, if you keep this up, you're going to lose custody of your kids. Hmm. Wow. And there had been several instances like just neglect, staying out Mm -hmm. longer, anger, rage, just so many things that I I couldn't do it. I mean, I was just desperate Mm. and uh, had a firm Christmas party. Okay. And my nephew says firm Christmas parties don't count. It's a non-day but I end up getting really, really Mm -hmm. drunk, leaving my kids with my son's friend's parents. And I drove out of Rice Village in a blackout, Mm -hmm. came out of the blackout at the stadium, Mm -hmm. 
nearly wrecked coming uh-huh. home. And I said, okay, I can't, I can't do this. Yeah. Cause I don't know that anybody would have found my kids wow. where they were to tell them. And uh, that's when I started calling this right. club. Like every day I had the number up on my little mm-hmm. board at work. Okay. So when are your meetings? I would ask. And okay. What if I'm late? Can I bring my daughter? What, you know, so do I sign in? And finally the guy was really exasperated mm-hmm. with me. And he says, lady, just come to a meeting. But I didn't, I, I didn't have that courage at that uh-huh. moment. And then I had a, a good friend of mine whose family is a high profile Houston right. family and they had a Christmas uh-huh. party. And I swore I wasn't going to drink. So I didn't drink before I left like I uh-huh. normally would. I waited when I got there and I wasn't going to drink. And then somebody walked up to the bar and I got a red wine and uh, got to talking with some guys. And next thing you know, I'm coming out of a blackout mm-hmm. and talking to a guy agreeing to do something. He was an attorney. And I joke around in meetings and I say, I don't know if I was agreeing to have an affair or do contract or illegal work. I don't know. So a woman that I grew up with, uh, she was lived next door to me and her daughter was best friend growing up. I used to travel with them when they had a boat. We go up into Canada for two weeks. I went to Disney world with them for a couple of times. I was like her, her child. And she was like my second mom. And I remember seeing her like drinking liquor. I always thought it was Listerine, but she really had a serious drinking problem. I didn't know I was too young to really recognize that part of it. And in 1978, right before I went in the military, she mm-hmm told my mom and I that she had went to treatment and got sober and then I she see. had relapsed, but she got sober for the last time in 1983. And mm-hmm. she was my second mother. I looked up to her wow. so much, so much. Uh-huh. And she talked about AA huh. and how it made, how happy wow. it made her. And uh, I would see her every time I went home and she just had a joy about her, a joy that was absent before. She was there in Toledo uh-huh. going to meetings? Yes. When she was going and you were still there, did you, did you ever go to a meeting with her or sit down and talk to her to find out more about AA? No, I mean, I didn't. She did not know that I had a problem because, Howard, I hid it from my family in Ohio. Oh, okay. If I went home, uh-huh. I might have a drink or a beer or something like that. But I refused to let myself get drunk in front of my family. I see. Uh-huh. Uh, I really hit it well. She didn't know I had a problem and she knew I liked to party is what she told me because she was my first phone call after my first meeting. Okay. Uh-huh. I mean, she, it just, she had a joy. That's what it was. I mean, she just had a joy yeah. and that's how I knew that this was my shot. I knew I didn't really know about treatment. I didn't know about other opportunities or options. That's the only mm-hmm. option I knew. And uh-huh. so that's where I went with it. And mm. I knew I needed help. Mm. And so mm. Christmas day, I was up in Colleen right. with some friends. I didn't have my kids and we all mm-hmm. got really drunk on a bunch of different alcohol. And we saw, went by a friend's house and there was a Mercedes out front. And we said, Hey, let's go find out who owns a Mercedes. And uh-huh. cause that's what drunk people do. And yeah, so sure. we just busted in <laughs> on their Christmas Pro, their Christmas, yeah. right? And uh-huh. it was a yeah. woman, it was his daughter who lived in Houston. And mm-hmm. um, we, we were talking and I, I guess I was coherent, I suppose. But then mm-hmm. I came back on the 26th to Houston 
and I went to a movie and to the country club was my last drink. Um, Mm -hmm. And we went to the country club after the movie and my friend Mm -hmm. left a half a glass of wine. Mm. And I just remember looking Mm. at it. I'm like, who does that? Uh And then in my second thought was, Diane, that's not normal. And so um, the next day I was at work, I was working as a paralegal and there was a guy in my firm that was sober and he would make comments in the hall. And I, I was like, everybody knew I got trashed at the Christmas party. And I thought every yeah, time he said yeah. something, he was talking to me, la la la. Uh-huh. And right. um, cause it's all about me at that point. But yeah, of course they let us go home early. So I ran from the building uh-huh. because I thought if I don't run, they're going to ask me to go upstairs and have a drink with them. And then I'll never get home. Uh-huh. Okay. So I ran from yeah. the building, went home, and then I decided my kids were coming in the next day. I was going to go to the grocery store. I was going to stop and have a drink and uh-huh. then come home and get ready for their Christmas. So I get to the huh. Kroger and buy my groceries. I go over to the video counter and I'm talking to a couple women. This one of them leaves. They convinced me to get another movie. We step outside. We start talking. She says, hey, let's go have coffee. So we go have coffee and she tells me she's an AA. I burst into tears. So I asked, when's your next meeting? And she said, tomorrow. I was like, oh, hell, Uh Diane, you got to do it now or never, baby. And so she she gave me her phone number on a napkin. She drew a map over to the club. She said, meet Uh me there at 830. So I never went for that drink. And I went Uh home and I was honestly, I was so excited because it was like, I think I may have found a solution. This may be a solution. And I was so excited. I barely slept. I was thinking to myself, I said, you know, I'm going to do this AA thing tomorrow. Then I'm going to go next week. I'm going to find some courage. I'm going to go talk to Matt and I'm going to find out how Matt stayed sober and all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. And Hmm. so I get to the meeting the next day and I'm having all these second thoughts as I'm pulling in and I pull in, I walk in like I own the damn place and (laughs) I walk into the meeting room one at the old, old club. Right. And mm-hmm. there was the attorney, Matt, leading the meeting. Wow. And I said, hey. And he goes, hi, Diana. I said, hi, Matt. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and so I get into the meet. Susie shows up. I raise my hand as, for my first meeting. Becomes a first step meeting. Um, yeah. At the end, Matt says, he assures me, says, Diane, nobody will say anything. You know, what, whatever you say here stays here, blah, 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 blah. I burst uh-huh. into tears and I was just hysterical, hysterical. And so after yeah. the meeting, all these women, I call them the L's and the J's. They come up to me and they're pushing their numbers into my hand and they're crying. Mm-hmm. And um, all I could think of at that moment was if you uh, knew me, you wouldn't be doing this. And that's something. So that was my first meeting. That was my only desire chip. And I have been sober ever since. So that's on December 27th, 1996. Let me make sure I got the players correct here. Okay. Uh Now, Matt was another attorney. Uh Was he in your firm at the time? He was one of my superiors. Yes. And you knew he he went to AA. I did not know he went to AA. I knew he was sober. So you didn't know he was in AA until you walk into this, your very first meeting and he's sitting there leading the meeting. Correct. Okay. And and the woman who met you there, uh, Judy? Susie. 
Susie M. Oh, Susie. Okay. Is she the one who you met at the video? Yes. Okay. So isn't that something, these God moments for you kind of clumped together in a way that's allowed you to get and stay sober? Yeah. Wow. So what did you think when you got home after that? Well, I got my kids and they Uh were like, mom, it looks like you've been crying. Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm really Mm -hmm. good. And then I said, you know, Mm -hmm. mommy made a a decision today that she's not going to drink today. Hmm. And they were like, whatever. They were nine and 12. Did they come down to Houston from Colleen on their own? Um, They were with their dad. He had the first half of Christmas. I had the second half of Christmas. So I had to meet their dad at a halfway point. Now, when you did that, you were sober. Yeah, I had just left the meeting. When I left that 830 meeting, I went and picked up my kids Uh from their dad and they were coming home. Did you talk to him at all during that exchange? Absolutely not. So you didn't let him know that you had that you had been to AA at that point? No way. No way. Uh Uh-uh. Huh. That would have never set well. Yeah. Why, why not? Because it would have been me admitting to him that I had a drinking problem and it would have get opened uh-huh. the door in my mind, only in my mind, that he could get custody of the kids. And he knew that was the only way to hurt me. OK. Yeah. So I understand why you didn't say anything yeah. about that. OK. So this holiday that you had with your kids must have been like no other in your life, huh? It re- Exactly. It, it really was. We spent like New Year's Eve was frozen pizzas and some wars. It was all I could afford. And it was the best. We uh, put together a bunch of blankets in the living room. We all slept in the living room. And Uh yeah, it was really amazing. It was an amazing holiday. And I remember it very well. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my big book podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book Podcast is produced by Howard L., who received no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. So they got their mom back. Prior to this, Diane, to what extent did your your kids, now 9 and 12, when you got sober, to what extent had they seen you drinking and drunk over the years? What was their frame of reference? My son, he saw a lot and he remembers a lot. And he's just now starting to share Uh some of that with me. He remembers the men that came in and out of our lives. He remembers me hearing me throwing up in the sink one night when I came home. Uh Uh-huh. He remembers the parties. He remembers me drinking. Um, He's not resentful about it. Mm, mm -hmm. And he's older. And so he's less judgy. And it's like, you know, mom, you were single. It's like what you did, but whatever. Um, My daughter only Uh remembers what I called lazy days. Lazy days where mom's laying in bed drinking whatever concoction she came up with to cure the hangover. Lazy yes. days, <laughs> aka <laughs> Exactly. We called it lazy days. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and we would watch like That's college great. football, like every college football game ever or whatever was on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. And so we, she remembers lazy days, but she doesn't remember 
the drinking. You know, she remembers a lot of my mistakes, uh-huh. you know, and she wishes some things had been different. She's done a lot of her mm-hmm. own work. And so she feels um, comfortable sharing with me freely. But she also shares all the good things that I did, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. So your kids had the opportunity to some extent or another to have known the pre-sober Diane. Yes. When you were with them before getting sober, had you acknowledged the fact that you were drinking too much and adjusted your drinking when you were around them to not drink as much? Or did that not affect your behavior? Um, I never shared anything about my drinking with them. I wasn't Mm -hmm. really able to put it in words, Howard. It really wasn't something I just it was something I knew, but I couldn't verbalize. Did you cut back when you were around them? Yeah. I mean, I didn't drink at home. Okay. When I was out and about. I see. So did I ever get drunk when they were around? Probably. But they were also getting older. And that was a fear. That was a big fear I had. I was leaving them longer and longer. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So you went to your first meeting. What were your first six months or a year like in AA? I followed each and every rule that each person told me. Hmm. I went to probably 300 meetings in, in 18 months. I got my sponsor within a couple weeks. I started working the steps. I started the fellowship. Uh-huh. Um, I did have a mm-hmm. relationship at 90 days, which was a huge mistake. But I, w- you know, I've kind of felt I was unique. Hmm. So the ladies would have told you not to do that, right? They told me. Yeah, of course. But but then they let you do it and learn your own lessons, right? Yeah. And they didn't abandon me when, well, it didn't take me long to realize that he wasn't the one for me. <laughs> was he in the program? Oh yeah. He had 18 years. Yeah. Oh, classic, oh, classic, oh, classic. He should have known better. Maybe you were on the cusp of knowing better, but he sure as hell should have known better, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's regrettable probably. Yeah. But nonetheless, um, during those first six months, my son made the choice to go live with his dad. Full time. Yes. And I let it happen. It was everybody knew it was going to happen eventually because the dad, my ex was setting it up. And I see. I swore before I got sober that I was never going to let that happen. Never, 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 never. After I got sober and this happened, I decided that if my son had the courage to ask me, I had to have the courage to let him. And it lasted three years. um, But we spent, we were together all the time. Like I could commit to him at that point. Like he played baseball and he Mm -hmm. played some football and I would leave work at like one o'clock in the afternoon. I would drive up to Colleen where they lived. I would watch him play Mm -hmm. a double header, get back in the car with my daughter and drive back to Houston. Mm. Um, I would go see him all the time on the weekends. He came down Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. I would get him plane tickets to come down. I was very, very committed at that point, Howard. I really was. And I'm really proud of how I handled it. I am proud of how he handled it. And I remember being able to say to him at one point, um, I know you didn't choose dad over me. And when I said that, he just let out this, like he had been holding his breath the whole time. Mm. And he thanked me for saying it. And I became, in my mind, a really, really, really good mother. I had people in the program teach me how to talk to my children and be a good mother. I had learned boundaries from my mom. I learned accountability from my mom. And my children will tell me, 
today at 33 and 36, the things they remember me saying to them, my daughter had AA stuck all over her. So she calls me up now and she'll say, mom, I've already looked at my side of the street, but I need some advice on this. <laughs> yeah. It's like they have all of the lingo. And yeah, one of the women I knew uh, who's since passed away, Nancy H, she told me, she says, you know, Diane, if you can yeah. throw money at the problem, it's not a problem. And my kids who are very yeah. financially secure, they believe in that. They know that yeah. story and they know that that philosophy. And, yeah. and God has spoken to me so many times when I'm talking to my kids. But I became a really good mom. Yeah. Really good mom. Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, what a turnaround from before, largely credited to the women in your life. Absolutely. And they're still in my life. They're all still sober. All yeah. three of those those ladies, so they're cool. three women has their names uh -huh. were L and three were J. And I call them the L's and the J's. And I also for several months after I got sober, probably two years. Uh -huh. Once a month, I would call yeah. everybody because we didn't have email, we didn't have email, we didn't have text message, right? Uh -huh. And I would say, "Hey, we're all getting together on Tuesday at six o'clock. Come join us." And sometimes there were two people, sometimes there were ten. Wow! And we would wow. just go to dinner and do stuff. And I called two people every day because that's what I was told to do. And I yeah. called, and it was really hard. Yeah. And when I had things happen, I called and I, I talked to people and um, I went to meetings. Right. I remember my daughter one time I was really having a rough evening or whatever. And she goes, can you just go to a meeting? Mm -hmm. I'm like, OK. So she knew at what point do you remember sitting down with your kids and telling them about AA? Was that early on? Um, they I, by that time, I told them I'd stop drinking and I wanted to stay stopped and I needed to go to meetings mm -hmm. to do that. And so what okay. happened is a lot of these people in the program became friends of my children. And my friend Roseanne from Toledo, yeah. I called her three days after I got sober and she came to visit frequently. We went to the AA Women's International Conference together probably half a dozen times. And, you know, they I built a really solid foundation. Yeah. So... Let's go back and just for a second, sure. for the benefit of whoever happens to listen to this, you mentioned about getting into a relationship at 90 days with somebody who was sober yes. for 18 years. What was the outcome of that? And, and how did that, how did all that unfold? Well, it is something that I think women in the program need to know that there are men there that are preying okay. on women and uh -huh. they're getting women yeah. at their most vulnerable points, probably in their life. And they're taking advantage of them. Right. And they will justify uh -huh. it that they want to help and they want to make sure. But this right. particular person was very overbearing, uh -huh. very, um, very odd and yeah. very annoying. Uh -huh. And hmm. my kids did not like him. Mm -hmm. um, he just kind of elbowed his way into our lives. And I didn't know what to do with that. I really mm -hmm. didn't. And relationships was not my strong suit. Especially at three months of sobriety. I mean, goodness. Right. And so he was doing what no one should have ever done to a new person in sobriety. And so it didn't last three months. Like he was telling me how to raise my children. And he had a daughter that he hardly ever spoke with. and. He mm -hmm. tried to, you know, tell me what to do with my kids and how to do it. And my son was going to end up in jail if I didn't get him into therapy and just hmm. all these awful, awful wow. things. And my son is an amazing man. And 
Um, that yeah. was far from uh-huh. the truth. And it was one of those things I had to, it was the first time in my life that I really depended on prayer and asking uh-huh. God to give me the path to get out of this thing. Cause he's already showing me engagement rings. Oh brother. And I'm like, I don't even know. No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And um, yeah. trying to get out of that. And I prayed and I prayed every night, give me the words, give me the opportunity, give me the courage, give me the strength. And so I was working the steps and I was starting my fourth step. And I used that as the opportunity to say, I've got to end this, that I'm working on my fourth step and I need time alone. This isn't working for me right now. So uh, kind of peace Mm. out. And he took it well. He didn't stalk me or anything like that. Were you able to still go to meetings that he went to or was that an uncomfortable situation? No, I did. How about him? Did he keep going or did he? He did. He has since passed away. Hell of a lesson to learn in your first six months, huh? It really was. But it was an experience that I can share with other people in the program and say, this is how it happens. This is how they prey on you. This is how they get you at your most vulnerable. I can share my strength, my experience, strength and hope with other women. And okay, so even if you just disregard our advice and get into this Uh relationship, you can get out. Uh, I remember Susie telling me at that first time at that Starbucks before my first meeting, she mm-hmm. saw my my mind mm-hmm. working. She read my mind and she goes, Diane, I see what's happening here. If you think you're going to meet your next husband in an AA meeting, just remember, these are the men you used to drink with. <laughs> They're as sick as you are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just think about those men. So you broke it off with him and you mentioned your first 18 months. You mentioned getting involved in your fourth and fifth step. How long had you been sober by the time that you were working those steps and going into the later steps of the program? Uh, Probably took me around 18 months. Yeah. And I did because when I did my fourth and fifth, after that, we were doing eight and nine. And I came Mm -hmm. up with an amend I needed to make. And my sponsor said, I have never heard of this let's go start over on four and five. So I had to kind of revert back and, mm. and get real thorough. Wow. It probably took me 18 months, 20 months to get through the stuff. Uh-huh. So during that time, you're still going to regular meetings. Uh-huh. Uh, is this the point at which you were starting uh, law school? Uh, yes, I got my undergrad degree while sober. Then cool. I got into law school and and got into um, got through law school while I was sober. I did get married while I was sober, and that that marriage lasted uh-huh. about five years. It did. I really do believe there's a he didn't understand alcoholism at all, at all. Yeah, that's tough. And did not believe I was one. He was encouraging. I mean, it wasn't like he derided me yeah. or anything. But I think that led to a lot of different issues, and and there were stepchildren that were issues were issues and. And that's kind of one of those kind of blips on mm. the radar screen to me today. I get it. Yeah. Well, it's good that that you recognize that at the point. And even if somebody is encouraging someone else to go to meetings, that doesn't necessarily mean that they support the entire idea of getting sober, uh, especially if they want some kind of control. Right. I get that. And I've heard that from from different people. So after that five year marriage, how many years sober are we talking about? Uh, let's see. I was 14 years sober at that point. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So from 14 till 24. So over the next 10 years, what did the next 
five or 10 years look like in your life, specifically related to, you know, raising the kids and going to meetings and staying involved? And did you ever find times at which you were moving away from AA? You know, can you kind of unpack some of that for us? Yeah, there was one time when all of the cliches started really rubbing me wrong. It's like, really? stop, uh-huh. stop, stop. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And you know, and I just muddled through that. Were you going to fewer meetings at that time or were you kind of letting up? Yeah. Yeah, I was. Uh-huh. I was. And yeah. then I got back involved. I got back into the meetings and developed a new kind of posse mm-hmm. that I really liked and was single, dated a little bit here and there, mm-hmm. um, dated someone in the program for a little while. Mm-hmm. And with each one of those relationships, there was a new lesson for me to learn, right? Isn't there always? There's always the lesson, but are we paying attention is the question. Well, yeah. And are they making any difference in the way we operate next time? Exactly. They really help amend our behavior. Now, at this point, did you still have the same woman as your sponsor that you'd had all those years ago? No, we kind of drifted apart. Mm -hmm. It's a real, real strange sort of thing. I don't formally have a sponsor today, Hmm, but I have a lot of women that have a lot of experience, strength, and hope in other areas Mm -hmm. that I use. Um, I I did some intense therapy after Hurricane Harvey. Mm -hmm. Um, I did about a year of really intense therapy. You you really got devastated by that storm, didn't you? I did, uh, you know, and, and it's emotionally, I was wrecked. After Harvey, my house was damaged extensively. Sure. um, But not like my neighbors, right? Right. So I had survivor's guilt. I I could still live in my house. I got Mm. to drive through the wreckage Mm -hmm. over and over and over. And it was a lot of trauma. And I didn't recognize it until the following February. I had gone to a therapy appointment and I was on my way to the Ash Wednesday service at my church. Uh And I, I was walking up to the church. And I had a thought that I've never had. And it was like, why am I even bothering? So this would have been, I was about 18 years sober at this point. Uh Now, don't get me wrong. I wasn't thinking of killing myself or anything like that. That wasn't, but it was that one thought that what the hell, what am I doing? Why am I even bothering? Yeah. And I get into church and my, the the, um, priest at my church is an Uh amazing person. And he spoke to me that night. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know that it was a save my life moment, but it certainly pointed me to a different direction. Wow. So here you were at the very edge of the abyss, so to speak, emotionally, after surviving what wrecked a lot of people's lives here in Houston mm-hmm. four years ago now. Yeah, it's been it's been yeah, four years. As of the date of this interview. So you're at your low point. You're not necessarily thinking about taking a drink, but you're entertaining some other more permanent solutions when mm-hmm. you just happen to be going to church that night and the priest talks to you. Yeah. Is that safe to say that's another God moment in your life? It's a, tr- it's truly a God moment to this uh-huh. point that I felt compelled to email him and tell him Wow. Uh, how wow. he struck me that night mm-hmm. and how, um, how important that sermon was to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they don't get a lot of feedback. It's sort of like sure. lawyers. Yeah. We only get feedback when people are pissed, <laughs> right. but that was a, a kind of a pivotal moment. When you think of those moments in your life, when you're going to do a turn or whatever. And I started really after that point, 
pulling myself up gently mm-hmm. back into sanity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my kids have done so well with their lives. Mm. And, you know, we, we went through a lot together sure. and, uh, you know, when their dad passed away in 2012, they both had difficult relationships with him, but they were by his side mm-hmm. and, um, mm-hmm. he left a mess. He left a mess, believe mm. me, but yeah. nonetheless for you to clean up, uh, pick up the pieces of my children's broken hearts one more time. Yeah. Yeah. And then he left a wife who my children refer to as Satan and they had to deal with her. Yeah. yeah. And, and that wasn't even of my making, you know, I had, but she, it was always something. And, but so when he passed away, we were all sad Mm -hmm. and our hearts were broken, Mm -hmm. but it was a relief. We didn't have to worry when the next shoe was going to drop. Right. So, yeah, it's still a tough thing for for anybody to go through, much less yes. when you're in your late 20s or early 30s. Yes. So after this point at which the priest kind of spiritually intercedes, how did your program from that point on become reflective of that occurrence? I suppose I was recommitted to everything that has always worked to, for me. Uh-huh. I went back to the basics of meetings, prayer, uh-huh. um, reaching out. Uh-huh. being available. Yeah. And yeah, I went back to the basics. In these interviews, I haven't gone too deep into the the professions that people are in, but yours actually involves uh, alcoholism, drug abuse, family, right. domestic situations. At what point in your sobriety did you become passionate about those particular avenues? When I began to realize, I practice a lot down in the Corpus Christi area. Yeah. And down there, every case that I touched involved drugs and alcohol. Oh, my. Um, I would be maybe one, maybe two didn't. Mm-hmm. And so as my practice grew... Mm-hmm. And it gave me the opportunity to stick my program on people. And it's it's really a pleasure when they come back and tell me they followed or they remembered my advice or they followed my advice and they were mm-hmm. so grateful for the experience, my experience, strength and hope that I've shared with them. Mm-hmm. And I do share with them that I'm sober. Mm-hmm. I do it when it when it's appropriate. Yeah. Right. When yeah, it's appropriate. Sure. sure. And so it's been a, a very powerful part of my program. Mm-hmm. And part of my profession. Yeah. And everybody that they just know that I'm kind of a poster child for all of this, Howard, yeah. within yeah. the legal profession. Yeah. And I ran for a position on the board of directors for the state bar. And part of my platform mm-hmm. was we've got to find those people in our profession that need us. The people that know they need help, they're already identified and they're going to be getting the help with us. But we got to find the people that don't know that we're here to help them. We've got to have a, our hand has to reach out to help lift them up. And it's usually the solo practitioners just trying to crank out a living. We're sure. not all rich and famous, right? Right, right. Um, we're all just like other human beings, just trying to crank, crank out a living when virtually in every case, I think everybody hates us. Well, and especially when you're talking about, and I've known an awful lot of lawyers uh, over the years, uh, both recovering and not recovering from alcoholism and drug addiction. And I was involved in the organization you're talking about at a, at a statewide level and had the opportunity to interface with some of those people. It occurs to me that one of the biggest challenges faced by people working with actively alcoholic attorneys 
is that by the time they get found out, the repercussions from what they're doing, especially with so many other in their profession involved in it, mm-hmm. you know, that's the only reason they'll do anything about it. They don't necessarily yes. see the, I'd like to get sober to improve the quality of my life. Instead, it's, I'll get sober to to meet whatever. Keep uh, my license. To keep my license. Do you find that a lot? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How do you deal with that, though? Well, you know what? Better late than never, right? Yeah, I get it. Sure. So I've served on the grievance panel, mm-hmm. and a lot of the grievances are for people, attorneys not communicating with their client, keeping yeah. them reasonably informed, uh-huh. uh, taking their money and all of that stuff. Right. So um, when I was on the grievance panel, I had an eye out for those needing in to be intervened upon. Sure. Uh-huh. And we've sat in meetings with people that have said, you know, Harris County intervened on me and that's how I got sober. Huh. Uh, so maybe it's the state bar that intervenes on somebody to get them sober. Mm. But I also speak a lot to different uh, attorney organizations mm-hmm. about identifying those people who are struggling. Mm. The ones that are, have always dressed well, carried mm-hmm. themselves well, are now sloppy, either lost weight, gained weight, disheveled, Hmm. um, missing appointments and dates and not responding. And, and let's find those people and find out what's going on instead of just, you know, being frustrated. Mm -hmm. Let's see if they need something. Is there something that I can help with? So once they're, once they're already at that point, uh, you get involved. I've asked this question of the other attorney. So I'll ask it of you just to be fair. What is there about being in the legal profession that seems like There are more lawyers in AA than almost any other profession. What is there about that business that we see a lot of alcoholics? It's a thankless job a lot of the time. Really? You know, they're the people in the big firms. Uh, I don't see them as much at risk. I don't see them in meetings as much as I do see the smaller, the attorneys in the smaller firms. Yeah. And um, it's kind of emotional you asking me that question. I'm not sure why I'm having an emotional Mm -hmm. response Mm -hmm. to it, Howard, but I think it's that we get into cases, we can't change the law, we can't change the Mm. facts. And our clients are like, why can't you help me? And we're trying to explain to them, you've already created this little disaster. Mm -hmm. And I can only do so much to fix it. And consequently, we get yelled at by the client and the family Mm. members and Mm. um, the other attorney and the other party hates us. Mm. And they're posting shit on Facebook Mm. about us. And, and we're, all we want to do is help our clients, yeah. but there's only so much we can do within the parameters of the law. And so one of our biggest challenges is managing our clients' expectations. Yeah. But when hell rains down on these people and then they don't get paid and then they can't pay the bills and then they take their clients' money, uh-huh. it just adds up. There are deadlines. You don't want to miss the deadlines. I can't lose my license. All of this stuff, it really starts weighing uh-huh. on us and very, very difficult sometimes when you're, I I imagine the solo practitioner who's got one office and they're sitting there trying to meet a deadline 11 o'clock at night with a bottle of scotch. Yeah. And they don't know they have a problem yet. Yeah. They're just trying to get through. Mm. And so I think it's incumbent. And this is my kind of my mantra is to find the attorneys who need us before they know they need us. Yeah. Right. And open the conversation with yeah. them, talk to them, 
Uh, we are uh, have the highest suicide rate of any other profession. Hmm. We have catapulted dentists. Dentists, dentists had the highest That's rate. Yeah, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Go figure. Uh, yeah, we don't know yeah. that one. Yeah, and you know it's, we're up there with pilots and doctors yeah. and those people that hold lives in their hands, right? Yeah, where the expectations are so high that you can't possibly ever reach them, and when you do, you're waiting for a feeling that will wipe out all the other bad feelings, and it's just not that powerful, is it? Yes. Yes. And I had a recent experience where I had uh, just in uh -huh. July, I've been working very, very hard in G all through June, all through July. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like the worst lawyer ever. And I called my fiance and I said, I, I he's like, what's wrong? I, I And I just burst yeah. into tears. And I said, I'm a horrible lawyer. I feel like a horrible lawyer. I didn't say I am. I said, I feel like a horrible lawyer. I feel like I can't win. I feel like I'm over. I'm overwhelmed. I can't do this in, anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. And, you know, and he talked me off that ledge and I talked to my associate mm -hmm. as well. And, you know, and I just had to, once you share that sort of stuff, yeah. and that's what I learned in the yeah. program, you're only as sick as your secrets. Once you share it, once you find someone who's mm -hmm. safe, mm -hmm. who's not going to use it mm -hmm. against you, you say the words and you're freeing yourself. Oh, yeah. 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 It's, right? it's that valve, that relief valve on the pressure cooker. Uh, so it sounds to me like the legal profession, lawyers, especially those in private or smaller practices, particularly would benefit from any preventive interventions that might occur, like like uh, uh, therapy prior to getting to the point where they need to be intervened on. Absolutely. And one of the problems mm -hmm. we have, and I'm working on this as well, when you apply to take the bar right. exam, they ask questions about your mental health. And I had to share about, you know, that I was in recovery, which meant I had to go get more letters mm -hmm. from other people to say that I was really in recovery. And uh, right. so you go in with the stigma right. of right. addiction and mental health being bad. So people aren't going to openly admit to it because it's bad. Oh, yeah. And so it becomes a secret. And I'm trying to get the Texas Board of Law examiners to rethink that question yeah, on yeah. the application. That's a tough one, though, right? Yeah. If they don't, they're not going to just change it because Diane thinks they should change it. But well, so some some of the issues have been that should their competition and in a court case, you know, should the other side find out something that they can use against the lawyer personally? That's got to be much easier to do when a question just exposes it for the world. Sure. It's for me, I love it when attorneys will call me up and tell me how bad my client is <laughs> yeah. because they got a DWI or something like that. And and I'm like, really, you think that? And right. then I go in, I tell a little bit of my yeah. story. Yeah. The judges know my story. So a lot of right. those tactics fall on deaf ears with me. But there are attorneys in the world. The civil attorneys uh -huh. are brutal yeah. and personal. And so the one advantage I have mm -hmm. having being open about being sober, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Because I would say every single judge that sits on a civil or family court bench or a probate court bench knows mm -hmm. today that Diane is sober. So what? Next question. So they know you're sober. Do they know how you're sober? Did you acknowledge your involvement with AA? Yeah. Yeah. I don't have any. I don't hide it. Yeah. 
There's no reason to. You know, we talk about anonymity. You know, I've been very upfront with people over the years about my participation because it's a big part of my life. It's a very big part of my life. If I'm doing a good enough job uh, staying sober, then that probably means I'm doing a reasonably good job within the program of AA. And there's nothing in any of the literature, especially the early literature, which said that we shouldn't talk about AA and that we shouldn't talk about how effective it can be for people who really want it. But we have to talk from our own experience about it. So what you're saying then is, is these judges know when someone comes before them and they get ready to sentence them. Yes. They know what to realistically expect when they sentence somebody to have a certain number of AA meetings a week. Do they know more about this now because of you? Well, I only do the family law stuff, right? Okay, right. So I I gave up criminal law uh-huh. a long time ago, but they give them the opportunity. Yeah. One of the things that you and I tried to do with educating the, the mm-hmm. judges yeah. downtown was to say, hey, you can do evaluations all day long. Right. And then you can give somebody supervised visits, but how do we help them right. going forward? Right. And so, you know, we gave them that opportunity. And so that's what... I work on on my cases and that's what people call me to help them work on their cases. And I am of the school that you can get sober in other places than AA. There are people that can do it uh, in church or through other programs or through other ministries or or group therapy or something like that. And so I, I, I tell people, this is what I do. And this is what obviously millions and millions and millions have done. You know, if somebody's like, well, I'm going to do the church yeah. thing. I'm like, OK, you know, we're, the door is always open over here if you want to go to a meeting. I, over the years, have told you that if you ever run into a man who you feel who reaches out or reaches back to you saying, you know, I think I'd like to try this AA thing and you want to connect him with someone who can meet him at a meeting, you know that I'm one of those people and you've known that for a long time. And there are yes. there are other men and women yes. in the program who are willing to be that resource so that AA is not an abstract concept. Exactly. Uh, even when they're sentenced to go to a certain number of meetings to get their paper signed. Right. There are plenty of people today with years and decades of sobriety who were paper signers who were amongst that crowd, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And that's why I just try yeah. it. Give it a shot. Give it a yeah. try. Give it a shot. It's really interesting. You know, we know the percentages right. are bad. The percentages are not in the favor in favor of long term right. sobriety. Right. right. But I have to be the example. I have to be the one that answers the phone. And I've set myself yeah. up for this yeah. and willingly. Yeah. I'm the one that has to answer the, the messages on Facebook. I need help. Yeah. How do I get it? I'm the one that has to take the phone calls from the recovery centers when right. attorneys call me. Well, if I'm going to be yeah. out there like I am, I better set the example. You are really one heck of a great example. Thank you. I've been sitting here for the last almost hour and a half looking at your headshot and you've got this beautiful <laughs> smile. And so I'm thinking, you know, you must be all right where you're at. Uh, And it sounds like you are. It sounds like a passion to me and a pretty meaningful thing to do with your sobriety, which to me, the biggest question we have to answer for ourselves in AA is, okay, I'm sober. Now what? You know, how am I going to take this out? Yes. And my desire to do these interviews and also do the Big Book podcast was if one person, one place in the world gets helped by this, then it's all worthwhile. Yes. That's how I feel. Mm-hmm. If one person gets sober because right. I told them to, or I suggested, or I led the example, 
my life was worth living. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I, I, I love that, that in your attitude and that in your, just your day-to-day being as a person, as a recovering woman and Alcoholics Anonymous, that, that means the world, I'm sure. Thank you. Sounds like your gifts have been coming along the way. Uh, your God moments have been occurring. Yes. Can you give me an idea of your serenity level today? Today, I am in, on a one to 10, probably a nice nine. Good for you. Good for you. I, I'd like to think that this interview contributed to that a little bit, Diane. And It did. It, I like this. This has been remarkable just down and talk to you and get to know you better. I mean, I've heard you share in meetings over the years, but yes. and there's so many things that j- just need to be heard in context to really be believed and meaningful and You've done all that today. I love you. You're just one of my favorite people in the program. And and I'm glad you are as well. well. I'm glad that you were able to do this today. It it I think it's gonna make a big difference for a lot of people. And what um and once it's out and people hear it, especially as they hear it in, in, along with some of the other attorneys, I think they'll have a little bit different level of understanding and respect. I would love that. Yeah, absolutely. I would love that, Howard. Thank you for asking me. This has been such an honor and a pleasure. Well, thank you. You've done a remarkable and extraordinary job. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for this episode of AA Recovering Interviews. Thanks to Diane S. for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to at least three people you know? That includes sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. And if you rate this podcast highly wherever you get it, that'll help others find it more easily. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast providers. You can also simply say to Siri, Google, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews. You can visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. 